the Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, author of the Cannabis Business Book, and you're listening to the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, where I chat with and coach the highest performing entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, and on today's episode of the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, I'm joined by Michael Krawitz, the Executive Director of Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access. And I'm honored to have you here, Michael, because I know I'm going to learn a lot today because you've been doing this for a long time and you're a wealth of knowledge and you've been a diehard activist for many, many years. So thank you, first of all, for your service to to our nation and also to the cannabis community. And so if you don't mind, would you please introduce yourself to the folks watching and listening and tell, tell them who you are? Great, man. Thanks, Mike. Uh, so yeah, I'm Mike Krawitz. I'm a disabled U.S. Air Force vet, um, served in uh, so-called peacetime in the 1980s. And uh, I am the executive director of Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access. As you said, we're a national uh, voluntary association veterans service organization, kind of unusual in the voluntary part, uh, because we uh, you know, don't have a checkbook, we don't have a, a formal IRS status, we work as a group of individuals collectively for our common mission. Wow, amazing. And you also are involved in some other organizations doing some work beyond that. So can you tell us a little about that as well? Sure. So uh, it's a bunch, but the key ones are I'm on the board of the Origins Council. That's uh, formerly the Mendocino Appalachians Project. We're working on cannabis Appalachians out in California in the north north country, north mountain, north hills, north, north mountains, California mountains, uh, cannabis, good California grown cannabis, uh, trying to you know create that space uh, and, uh, and, and create that as a sort of a model for others to follow to protect and, and to create space for uh, traditional, uh, very special to the place cannabis grown in a special way with special love, special practices by special people. <laughs> and I uh, work with DRCNet Foundation, the Drug Reform Coordination Network out of uh, the other side of the country, out of DC. The main thing that we've been doing with DRCNet Foundation, Stop the Drug War, as it's also called, is uh, work at the international level to bring attention to the awful murders that have been done under the color of law in uh, the Philippines under the drug war there. And uh, the DRCNet Foundation is also our sort of flagship at the UN uh, with accreditation. I can explain that a little more if you want, but uh, you have to have a badge basically to get in the UN. You have to, you have to get invited to be inside and to be inside, you have to get invited to get invited, you have to be inside. You know, typical government catch 22. That was a, a big part of my early work was to get those badges. And I'm really proud of the fact that we have uh, so many, you know, what's called NGOs, non-governmental organizations that are able to work inside uh, of the UN. So I, I'm part of now uh, with Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access, we've joined this thing called the Veterans Action Council. And that's made up of individuals and veteran service organization representatives and, and military veterans from all across the country and even all across the world, if they want to join with us at our sort of uh, old school round table, uh, like an oak round table in virtual space. 
and it's been really great for us to meet you know under COVID, it's really been helpful and uh, we're sort of working on projects that collectively we can work on that individually even with a large service organization uh, individually would be difficult so it's sort of finding that common ground that the military veterans are looking for in this space it's mostly set up by veterans that are working in medical cannabis access but it's actually had a larger scope we even worked on you know hospital availability in the va system you know whatever whatever comes up on our radar we're working on and uh uh internationally we're working with uh, i'll mention just a couple more groups uh at least three working with maps here in the united states the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies they've also gotten their badges and they've been working with us inside the un and uh working on the right to, to science and, and the right to uh to do scientific studies that's been a pet project ever since they've been working on cannabis research under the federal program as you know and then uh ncod uh, based out of uh, Austria, uh, European NGO coordination network. And they also have accreditation at the UN and act as our local activists and bring in uh, activists from all over the world, working on coca, working on cannabis, working on the right to farm, a lot of different issues that cross over. And then finally, uh, Fields of Green for All, our partner in South Africa, uh, who also is in the process of getting accreditation at the UN. You can see we built sort of a team at the UN with the best that we could find from Earth and try to cobble them together. But that should be a good sampling to give you an idea of who we're working with. Oh, that's amazing. So, Michael, let me let, let's take a step back for a second. I want to hear how or when or yeah, how, when, why did you get involved in the cannabis movement? What's kind of the origin story, if you will? I got a bunch of different origin stories. Uh, you know, the, the the basic origin story is that I was in college and um, I was looking for a place to go on spring break. And this was back in the mid early mid to mid 90s, 1990s. And it turned out just fluke of the crazy airfares that year or whatever it was, that it was cheaper to go to Amsterdam from Virginia than it was to go to Florida from Virginia. And I just, as a lark, looked that up. And when I found out it was actually true, it wasn't a lark anymore. It became a real thing. So we actually went over to Amsterdam. And while over there, I, I got to visit a coffee shop, use cannabis legally for the first time. It was really you know, interesting. It was different. And, and there was this little museum there that, that I saw. I didn't have time to even check it out, but I saw it was there. And then next time I came to Amsterdam, I checked it out and got to meet the folks behind it is uh, Ben Dronkers, the Sensi Seeds uh, Cannabis Hemp Museum in Amsterdam. And the curator for that museum, you might know him, a guy named Chris Conrad out of California. Uh, the Emperor Wears No Clothes editor, wrote his own book, Hemp Lifeline of the Future. And uh, he actually was behind the counter. So I was asking, you know, one of the key people of our generation that worked on, you know, rebirth of the information of hemp and, and cannabis that created the movement essentially i was asking him for information personally i, I didn't realize how perfect the source I, had, I found myself with and that led me to two other things in amsterdam it was a green prisoners release project which was uh mostly set up to try to stop the um, extradition of u.s expats that were hiding out in Amsterdam because they faced massive penalties back in the United States for growing marijuana. Uh, Les and Cheryl Mooring were facing like 100 years in Missouri for growing like 100 plants. And what the Green Prisoners Amsterdam did, check this out, they took the same number of plants, seedlings, live in a tray, 
and carried them with no box or anything, just in an open tray on the train to The Hague to show the government and say, this is what these people are facing life in prison for. What I have in my hand right here, this is what they're facing life in prison. Are you really going to send them back to the US? So stuff like that really got me started. It actually was years later, it was around 1997, that I was fixing to get to go to this big drug summit. And I really started working on this international stuff more. Um, I made a pilgrimage out to Oregon and met up with Jack Herrer, Dennis Perone, all those guys. And I actually thought when I was gonna meet with them that getting them together, they would steer me in the right direction. There had to be people working on this, I figured, you know, changing the international law of cannabis, so to speak. No, there wasn't. They, they looked at me and they said, oh, that's a good idea, go for it. So now sort of with a mandate of the cannabis movement, I went to the United Nations in 1998. And that's basically where I became, you know, the, the activist that I am today, as far as the international end. Uh, like I said, there's other origin stories because I actually got connected with the Marijuana Policy Project as they were born. And my first year of activism was their first year. If you look at their reports, every report that they submitted that year had my picture in it, give you an idea of how closely we worked together. So yeah, it was it was a, a very, very interesting time to be part of, of such a, a important and strong cannabis movement that led to the creation of what we now see as our medical cannabis laws, which is such a strong platform on, on which we are now creating a regulated adult access program, you know, and, and finally regulated adult legal access at the national level. So yeah, it's, it's interesting just to finish that, that sort of flow so you know how that kind of worked from 1998 to 2008 around there we worked on badges entry into the un infrastructure you know uh, committees within the un dedicated to our non-government organizations working on drugs and and working on that infrastructure working on resolutions that helped us uh, establish better communication with the system all that and almost seamlessly around uh, 2010 or so I started working on this next project, which we just succeeded in changing international law just the 2nd of December. That involved about 10 years of work with both the United Nations in Vienna, Austria, and the World Health Organization back in Geneva, Switzerland. And that started with a seed resolution that was put forth by Japan and Azerbaijan in 2009, where they opened Pandora's box of reconsidering cannabis in the treaty. It took about five years behind the scenes, some crazy stuff, but finally led to the World Health Organization uh, doing a, a full-on review of cannabis. And uh, I could talk more about that, but that review is what led to the recommendations back at the United Nations and a vote and, and our successful uh, change in, in treaty. Fascinating road, huh? Wow, that's incredible. It all started with a, a spring break trip to Amsterdam. <laughs> that's amazing. And now here we are a couple of decades later and you just, you know, we just had this huge victory in the UN. Can you speak a little more about the significance of those UN treaties, those international treaties, and, you know, why that's so critical to ending prohibition and, and increasing access? Yeah, well, the, the treaty system is a very interesting one. Um, First of all, it's not a self-executing treaty, the drug control treaty, meaning that you sign it as a country, you obligate yourself uh, as a country to participate in the treaty, but then it's up to you 
as a country to set up your own laws to actually implement the the will of that of that change and we did that we passed the treaty uh, we signed the treaty and we joined it in 1961 that's when the single convention on narcotic drugs treaty was passed and uh, we signed it in 61 um, and then actually it's it's a strange little bit of history that maybe a lot of people you know didn't quite uh, get to you know as far as prehistory of where the, where we are now it, it seems to be uh, ancient history almost now but uh, Timothy Leary much more well known for his psychedelics work and everything like that he was actually personally the one who won his case in the Supreme Court back in 1969 against the marijuana tax act that was the federal law at the time uh, against marijuana and it was found unconstitutional because you had to incriminate yourself to fill out the tax form to get a tax stamp you had to tell them you were breaking the law, which was self-incrimination. It was found to be unconstitutional. It was thrown out for about a year there. And this is the funny part. I think a lot of people don't know for about a year. There was no federal law almost a whole year. It was no federal law against marijuana. It's overshadowed by all the stuff going on in the States. But uh, yeah, it was no federal law at that, at that particular moment. And then the new federal law was passed in 71, the Controlled Substances Act, which very much did implement that treaty um and and wove the treaty literally wove it into the law so if you read the controlled substances act it actually mentions a treaty talks about how the treaty is handled how the law is handled you know with respect to the treaty and i, I of course that's the united states perspective some countries around the world actually have the treaty written into their law to the point where they don't even have their own scheduling at their national level they just defer to the international scheduling so the minute the international schedule would be changed that would change their national law so you know you have to look at each country there's 186 countries that have signed on to this treaty you know 185 plus the united states um the world health organization declared back in the 1950s that cannabis wasn't well known as a medicine didn't have well-known medical uses and and was actually quite dangerous and uh, should be treated with great caution. The way that was interpreted over the years was basically only treat it like a, a substance for research, research only drug. And this review, uh, back and forth, very complicated uh, kind of uh, politics, but in the end, the World Health Organization did do an actual full on formal review where they considered all the research available, all the science available, everything that they've that's known today about cannabis and any capacity including even seeds that was what this the resolution from japan was talking about in the end they didn't even really talk about seeds which is funny seeds are considered exempt as part of hemp uh, and the example that they give in the treaty is uh, example seeds stems and stalks but it literally has parentheses and lists that as a as a set of examples the reason why i say that you know and emphasize it so much is apparently there's a dis disagreement there the body within the united nations that interprets this stuff is called the international narcotics control board and their position has been that that's a full list that that's actually what's exempt the seed stocks and stems but it's ridiculous like i said if you read it uh, uh, just on its face reading will be very clear that it's an example of you know how hemp is to be treated as exempt under the treaty so um just a side word about this process the united nations is separate from the World Health Organization. It's something I didn't know when I started working on this, but they are kind of separate uh, organizations, you know, huge organizations are representing, I think the World Health Organization might even have one or two countries more <laughs> in, in it than the UN, you know? And in the treaty, the treaty is completely a United Nations thing, 
but they actually do delegate authority to the World Health Organization to make these scientific uh, evaluations and to recommend placement in these schedules. They created the schedules in the treaty, but the treaty system itself, the UN, really doesn't have the ability to move stuff around in those schedules. It's the World Health Organization has to make that recommendation. Then they can vote it yes or no. Uh, it's up to them to, to actually implement it. So that's that relationship. I just wanted to get that kind of clear. But the World Health Organization reviewed this and came out with six recommendations. And uh, only one of them actually was accepted, oddly enough, the most bold of all the recommendations. The rest of the recommendations could almost be seen as housekeeping, uh, you know, correcting uh, sort of unscientific, you know, placement. Um, but the one bold change was removal of cannabis and cannabis resin from Schedule 4 in the treaty. Uh, the way the New York Times reported on it was uh, cannabis removed from the most dangerous drugs category. And that, that's a good way to describe it because that was how heroin was you know, scheduled. It was right there in the same way that heroin was scheduled. And now it's no longer scheduled in the same way that, that heroin is scheduled. And the World Health Organization has changed its position. That 1950s position is now gone. And their current position is that cannabis has well-known medical value and that it can be used with well-tolerated uh, side effects that are you know, not negative enough to, to warrant any kind of special uh, warnings. And in fact, they even recommended uh, placement for some cannabis products that were harder to abuse. Think like cannabis cough syrup, for example. They recommended over-the-counter sales for that. But again, the, the UN didn't accept that. The, there's a thing, I, I won't go into all the different recommendations, it's just too much nuance really to, to run through without slides to get your brain around, but the, the thing is this, there were two situations that the WHO tried to correct that we as cannabis consumers, industry, cannabis movement all uh, would agree with. And one is that um, THC right now is scheduled and placed in such a way as to give an edge to non-plant-based THC, non-plant-based synthetic, pure synthetic THC, actually has an easier time going through the regulatory process. It's, it's more easily available to the patient than the plant-based alternative. And that's just ridiculous. The World Health Organization sought to fix that, it got rebuffed. And CBD, another situation where right now uh, there's a debate as to whether CBD drawn from hemp sold as a food or you know starting to edge closer and closer to medicine how to treat that if it's still exempt as hemp or should be considered a marijuana extract and therefore control right could be looked at both ways but synthetic pure synthetic cbd not from plant material not controlled at all there's not, not it's not anywhere it's just absolutely uncontrolled so you can go down to the gas station and get pure synthetic not from plant cbd and it's absolutely legal but yet, you know, the pharmacy is having trouble delivering the plant material. Um, you know, not right. So I think that the World Health Organization tried to, you know, do a good job. I think they came up with recommendations that were doable and we did them. So one last little note, when the United Nations does anything in this drug control program over in Vienna, they have to have a consensus, 100% consensus. One country objects, it's, it's shot down. So that seed resolution, for example, was... A consensus resolution passed over to the WHO. Um, the vote on whether to accept the WHO recommendations is just a simple majority vote. 
So that was a lot easier for us to win than trying to get every single country in line. The drug control program is run by a commission of 53 countries that are delegated the authority by the 186 countries that have signed the treaty, that 53 countries are delegated the authority to do those day-to-day -day changes on a year-to-year -year basis. And uh, it took two years of their work to go through these recommendations, two years of the WHO to, to do the studies and everything, and then two years at the United Nations to finally, uh, yeah, to, and a whole year of, of politicking and work to get it all started. It's a five-year process, basically started 2015, ended 2020 with the successful vote. And it really, in my mind, hasn't ended yet because to me, it'll really end when that notification is sent out from the United Nations to all the countries saying that the UN uh, you know, has changed the international drug law. And that's when it gets interesting back in the US if you wanna talk about what's you know, likely to happen here about that. Yeah, let's, let's go for it. What's likely <laughs> to happen here? Yeah, so uh, we, as I said, you know, we are tied into this treaty. The way it's written into our law is, uh, and this is interesting, that is something I just found out fairly recently myself. Again, you know, we've been as activists in the cannabis uh, movement, I've been working for like 50 years to fight the scheduling of cannabis, you know, to remove cannabis out of schedule one in the United States, where it's literally written in the law that it has no medical value and, and it should be prohibited. Um, the active ingredient of, of marijuana, THC, cannabis is active ingredient in a pill, again, synthetic, but in a sesame seed oil capsule was approved by the FDA and put in schedule two. And then that was down scheduled to schedule three because it was so safe. And we still have the plant material in schedule one as the most dangerous drug not available. That's the disparity that we're in right now in the US. And we've been fighting that in court for like 50 years under this section of code in the Controlled Substances Act that pertains to those schedules. Well, check this out. If you read past those paragraphs, to the next paragraph in our Controlled Substances Act, it gets to the treaty clause, what I'll call the treaty clause, but it literally mentions treaty obligations and whatnot. And the first part of that says that the attorney general shall disregard the previous section, <laughs> the one we've been fighting in for 50 years, is the first sentence in the next section. The attorney general will disregard that previous section and will place cannabis in the schedule or any drug in the schedule appropriate to the to the changes in the drug control treaty. So in other words, the, the drug control treaty that we've signed into may specify a certain level of control. That level of control is then interpreted because the numbers don't add up at all. And, and it, it, it does take at the minimum some interpretation, but then that's interpreted by our, supposedly our attorney general, according to law. Attorney general has for the most part delegated that authority to the DEA, but it's not clear that this change from the treaty down will be delegated to the DEA. I, my opinion is that it probably won't. Uh, going from us up, in other words, when we're challenging the, the scheduling, we had to deal with the DEA. That was who was delegated the authority to fight with us. But I don't know that this change in the treaty is actually gonna ever hit the DEA first. It'll probably hit the, the Justice Department through the State Department, you know, top down. And the Attorney General then, according to that section, We'll make a determination of what schedule is appropriate in our law, and that's what stands, disregarding the previous section. So we just knocked down that whole myth of cannabis being dangerous and should be scheduled like heroin, no longer applies at all. 
it shouldn't even be scheduled like morphine or any you know anything like that really uh that was how it was already scheduled essentially um the justice department was saying that we could have schedule one or two that's what they said years ago that was our limit under what the treaty said before so i think that's our you know our starting point it has to be at least less restrictive than schedule two which would put it at least on par with its active ingredient drug marinol which is a good start so i think that's what's likely to happen is that's the debate i can almost see it now the dea is going to be debating on the side of staying in one or two and then we're going to be debating on the other side saying that's what we had already what, what what's the change then right and the change is i think three four or five should be open to us and it would be up to the executive branch in other words our new president as of noon today uh, will have the option uh, of, of more options based on this change as soon as they get the letter in their hand from the United Nations that says that the international law has been changed. So do you think that it's likely that that's going to happen? Like, do you think that the Biden administration will actually move on it? I, you know, the, the question for me has been really around the Senate seats. Because uh, the two Senate seats that were in Georgia, if they had gone to where they, you know, seem to be going to the Republican Party, then you'd have that Republican-controlled Senate and uh, Democratic-controlled House, and you, you weren't seeing any movement on bills, no hearings really uh, in the Senate. We we had a historic House passage of the Moore Act. That's a Senate bill. We haven't even gotten the vote, you know, in the Senate because of that blockade. So now that those two Senate seats actually went to the Democrats and there, there will at least be hearings on that Moore Act in the Senate, but it's still very tight. It's a 50-50 split. You know, it's a, it would be hard to imagine a controversial bill like that actually passing out, at least not quickly. There'll be certainly some debate, um, some time on that. And in the meantime, there's gonna be an urge to move uh, quickly. And I, I think this may just, you know, I haven't been able to have the proper conversation with the incoming administration to really give you insight into this. Um, and I hope to have that soon. And I, I hope to avail the system actually to our expertise of our team and uh, what we've done. This connection really hasn't been made yet. Uh, however, the words that I've gotten already, you know, hearing from uh, uh, you know, incoming President Biden was already talking about scheduling as an option. He was already talking about rescheduling to schedule two uh, as, you know, part of that ceiling that I was talking about before, I think that would have been a natural option. If he's at all thinking about that, and if they're at all paying attention to, you know, the, the, uh, what's their job, you know, the executive branch's job to can keep this conversation going in Vienna and, you know, to work on these treaties day to day, uh, the Senate can pass a law. And this is an interesting thing I also learned pretty recently. The Senate can pass a law like the Moore Act that basically just ignores the treaty and, and, legalizes marijuana, creates national regula regulated adult access, even though that really should require addressing the treaty and addressing the language of the treaty. Um, at the very least, trying to change the treaty. At the very least, us presenting our case for why the treaty should be changed. And at the very least, us formally, at least uh, withdrawing from the treaty or, or you know, formally uh, addressing that disparity, you know, with uh, with some kind of process uh, that we would that we would undertake, so that really hasn't been talked of at all yet. It's something that would be really good, um, but 
uh, it's not really absolutely necessary is my point. You know, that the, the more act, any law of Congress, from what I've been taught about case law, uh, the Congress can actually pass a law flies right in the face of our treaty commitments. And that's okay, it's not unconstitutional to do that. So that presents some very interesting questions, lots and lots of very interesting questions um, as we move forward. Uh, but the, our advice, actually, we talked to attorneys and looked at it really closely, and our advice is really low hanging. Uh, while all we advise on the MORE Act is a note be inserted around that treaty clause, because the treaty clause doesn't specifically say marijuana, it just says drugs that are controlled under the treaty. So if they put an explanatory note with a little star, so you go down, it says, you know, on such and such a day, we change the law so this treaty clause doesn't affect marijuana anymore. It doesn't affect cannabis. That would be all they'd have to do. And it would make it clear. Our, my fear is that in the future, this is going to be kind of cryptic to understand what we just did if they don't do that. Michael, let me ask you to let, let's shift gears for a moment from the policy side of things to the business side of things, which, you know, are, are quite intertwined. I'm curious from your perspective, having been doing this work for many years now and seeing the legal industry really be born, how do you feel about the way things have progressed? And, and I'll preface you know, the question a bit with, I know a lot of activists who are pretty disgruntled with industry and how things are going and how it's been built and, and so on and so forth. And so I'm, I'm curious what your take on that is. Yeah, uh, I, I would describe our point in history as a point of discontinuity. If you, if you remember mathematics, the, the graph is a nice smooth graph, but if there's a point of discontinuity, it just jumps at that point. It's almost in two places at once, it looks like almost, and then it moves on. Uh, and you have almost two realities. You, know, you have the reality on the left, you have the reality on the right, and, and the reality in between is, is, I don't know, somewhere in mathematical hell. Um, <laughs> uh, that's, that's where we are right now. <laughs> We're in the middle of that mathematical hell. What can I say? Um, I, I have a vision of the future that's pretty clear. And unfortunately, a vision of the past that's very clear. Uh, but how we get there is, is the, 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 the key, the trick. I, I think that folks that are basing their models on prohibition numbers need to reassess their math and think more clearly about the future. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that we, we've been talking about a lot is indoor versus outdoor. Indoor uh, has been a fundamentally a, 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 a function of prohibition, you know, where you need to hide the crop from the, from the helicopters, you need to hide it even from the electric company. I mean, you have to hide it in a basement with your own generator and, and, and uh, you know, seed sales have been something that we've spread around the world openly without any recognition of source. We would never do that for like any other kind of produce, you know, you, you don't get Guatemalan pumpkins and, and, and not have some kind of, you know, connection to Guatemala in the end, you know, but we did that. And now we have to just sort of move on and create something new. In other words, the thing we're creating now is not going to be based on what we had in the past. It's not, it's not even a projection of what we had, but it's a different reality that we're creating now where we respect origin, we respect people's uh, intellectual property, we respect their genetic source material, we respect their history, their knowledge of their traditional uh, uses and medicines. We respect all those things that were totally disrespected during the drug war. And then finally, we have a plant that is being treated as an agricultural crop when it's hemp 
up to in the U.S. up to three percent point three percent THC is uh, I'd love it was three percent. That should be the change now, but yeah, I think it's point three percent THC. Uh, and and then uh, above that is considered marijuana, which is grown only under state laws. But that's irrelevant to my conversation right now. It's grown as a drug crop. It's grown under alcohol control. It's grown under drug control. It's grown under medicine control, whatever. Uh, in various states, it's different ways, but none of it basically is agricultural. And that's where we're going to be eventually is there's one agricultural crop. It, it just doesn't make sense to have a line in the sand based on THC value. What happens when you collect 300 acres of the THC from the 0.1% THC crop? You still get three 55 gallon drums of THC. It's the same 55 gallon drum of THC. That's the, the 55 gallon drum problem they're dealing with right now. And, and, and then, uh, you know, we have individuals that I, I like to think about famous Amos cookies. And, and in Virginia, the way we've been presenting it is, you know, home grow, home cultivation is the first rung of our commercial ladder. It's the non-commercial rung of our commercial ladder. You grow at home, you share with your friends. If you can do it well enough, you can produce a cookie good enough, maybe you go to that first rung after that and get a license and get into the industry. What that does is it gives a huge genetic resource to the industry of, of diversity that's unimaginable under a corporate model because you have individual sort of like crowdsource ability to do this. And, and I think that industry needs to embrace these things and uh, understand that it's not competition, you know, that it's part of a, a different way of doing things in the future. And, you know, if you're basing things again on a, on a prohibition model of 15 or $20 a gram, you know, consider that out there somewhere is someone working on a formula for Petri dish THC, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So just to echo a little of what you're saying, what I'm hearing uh, is this, you know, this corporate model is really still in a lot of places, the way it's being regulated is built on scarcity and artificial scarcity. And in, in fact, where they limit licenses and say only, you know, these people can produce and these people can sell and, you know, so forth. When really that's like the antithesis of cannabis, where this is a natural resource, a sustainable, renewable resource with so much value, so much utility to offer in so many different ways. And to your point, if we instead encouraged everyone who wanted to, to be involved and to, to actually, you know, take that non-commercial rung of the ladder seriously as an important base and an important part of the foundation, we would all be so much better off in the long term because, you know, just like on the scientific side where we're basically, you know, prevented from doing research on humans and all, all of this stuff that's holding us back, you know, it's the same way where if we could, we'd be able to throw fuel on the fire and accelerate innovation and data and good information. And instead, we, we have to fight for every inch, it seems like. That's it. Michael, let me ask you, and I, and I swear I'm not asking this because I need to know the answer. I'm, I'm, I'm asking for the audience, but how have you been able to sustain and persist in this mission for so many years without getting discouraged, disgruntled, giving up or any of that stuff? And I promise I'm not asking because the thoughts ever crossed my mind, certainly. Yeah, well, you know, uh, there's another origin story, and, and that is, uh, as I said, there's several. And this one is uh, my wife saying, quit complaining about it and 
do something already. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a disabled vet. I would be sitting on my couch a lot, uh, you know, probably spending money on eBay or something. Uh, this gives me something else to do and keeps me out of my wife's hair. I, the work that we've done has really been, you know, if you're looking at it very slow, if you're looking at it day by day, you can get incredibly, you know, you can get incredibly discouraged, unfortunately. Uh, and, and there's certain places, you know, where you can look and be incredibly discouraged places as in places geographically, but also places as in, you know, areas of policy, areas of blind spots of our movement, etc. But if you look at the big picture, uh, like at the United Nations, for example, you know, that they, they when I came in in 1998, they were just grappling with uh, demand reduction versus supply reduction. Seriously, that was, they had supply reduction they did in their last treaty discussions that they had in the 1980s. And they kind of got that uh, around, you know, in their brain, but then they were looking at demand reduction. And then in the 90s, we as a, as a, a non-governmental world, non-governmental organizations really pioneered harm reduction. And, uh, you know, countries like the Netherlands helped lead the way uh, as countries, but it was mostly grassroots effort needle exchange thing, you know, very low level uh, grassroots efforts to save lives that created the, you know, the, the understanding of harm reduction as we know it, non-judgmental meeting the drug user where they are to improve their lives stuff rather than just say no, improving their lives by abstinence. It's a very different fork in the road. And it took about 10 years and the United Nations got their brain around that. So really now, honestly, in the 2000s, the UN actually has its brain around harm reduction, but we're already, where were we? We're out there way ahead of that in finally getting rid of the last vestiges of the worst aspects of prohibition by creating regulated access, by getting rid of prohibition, the final, you know, stamping out the cockroaches uh, of, of, of our ancestors' uh, ideas about prohibition, which are just faulty, very, very faulty. And that's, that's our fight. This is our fight right now. I wish I could have done this 20, 30 years ago when I had more energy. That's about the only thing I wish, because this is really exciting. Um, you know, this, this 10 years in the United Nations, this 10 years inside the United States, this 10 years internationally of the cannabis industry being born essentially, um, internationally take, taking that step first baby step from little small medicinal access programs, sharing a little bit of cannabis back and forth to actually full on industry of, uh, of a adult regulated access is gonna be really something to see. And if working on the local level policy is any you know, guide, is any model, that there, we have some complexity, we have some real work to do. Everybody that has been working on this so long has, has a job to do now more than we would have expected a lot more than we would have actually anticipated but a lot more fun too and, and this is i mean come on you know I, I attended a hearing today in virginia where nobody talked about it was a legalization how to legalize cannabis in virginia they're implementing it there it's a bill on the floor ready to go and no arguments against it no arguments in favor of it or against it it's all nuance of how do we do this right We've gotten past in just like one year, I don't even know when it happened or where, but in the last year or two, that whole notion of defending this idea of decriminalization, defending the idea of legalization, we don't even do that anymore. Now it's nuanced, roll up your sleeves and get it right. And don't count on industry to do it all. Industry is spending a lot of money. They got a lot of lobbyists, they're doing a lot of good work. Unfortunately, they piss off a lot of grassroots activists because 
they reinvent the wheel a lot, you know, and they have to train their lobbyists to do what we're already doing in many cases. Uh, that's growing pains, I'd call that. But un uh, unfortunately, they don't see all the perspectives that we would see as citizens. There are some missing points of view, like home cultivation, for example, uh, uh, that, you know, like poor and, and uh, veterans access, uh, folks that don't have insurance coverage, uh, aren't wealthy enough to purchase cannabis, etc. These are all issues that seem to fall on society at large to solve with industry's help, but not necessarily driven by industry. But I see that as a partnership moving forward. And I just want people to, you know, have my, my perspective of where we fit into that, not to give up and go home, but rather to sort of become more specialized. As far as in the UN, when it comes to the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, how common or not is it to hear hemp in those conversations? And you know, I ask because in, in my opinion, hemp is this miraculous plant that can address so many of the SDGs. And, and yet from what I've seen, the ESG world, the impact investment world, and a lot of the sustainability world has been really slow to embrace and champion hemp. And I'm wondering if that's consistent with, with what your experience has been, what you've seen, or, or if that's changing. And can you speak to that a bit? The, um, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I had thought in, in my mind a few minutes ago, oh, it's a shame we talked for so long and never got to SDGs because uh, it really is a fundamental part of our work that uh, we've, we've done over the last few years. Uh, another organization I didn't mention before, FAT, F-A-A-A-T, three A's, F-A-A-T, uh, Foundation for Alternative Approaches for Addiction Treatment, Think and Do Tank out of Paris, France. Uh, and uh, my partner in Barcelona, uh, uh, Spain, Kenzie Ribulais, uh came to me basically through that FAT uh, project. Uh, Farid Gaucher in, in Paris, the three of us sort of make up that core team that, is, that have led a lot of this effort in, in Geneva uh, and, and have worked on this, uh, you know, inside the, the United Nations. And uh, um, what we decided to do, it was, it was right about you know, where we wanted to put a bunch of people into the process in Vienna so that they can understand what was going on around the World Health Organization recommendations. The, the, like I said, there was a lot of drama, <laughs> I, you know, I talked about before, back and forth, uh, crazy stuff. I didn't want to get into the great depth because each one of those things could be a whole other story and show uh, about the, the shenanigans going on and the, obs the, the obstinate objections from Russia and Nigeria and, you know, the battle on the floor. And, and it's just, it's such a saga, so much drama. But uh, at, at the end of the day, the um, process is sort of invisible, not, not even like transparently, like invisible, like cut off completely from, the, from view from the world because inside the United Nations, there's very few media that go in there and cover it at all. You know, they, they do occasionally come in if there's a, a world leader that comes in and speaks on the podium or something, says a really great speech, as usually come in with all their press and they cover that and they basically leave. And 90%, 95% of what goes on there is never covered. And even our cannabis activist community doesn't know really what's going on. So our idea was hey, what we'll do, this uh, sustainable development goal program was starting. It's a 2020 to 2030 agenda, the 2030 sustainable development goal agenda, 17 development goals to try to change our world for the better. 
what I would call good metrics of success. You know, instead of like at the drug control program, they'll come in and just say, oh, we arrested more people than last year. We eradicated more plants than last year. Boy, that's success. No, success is like the SDGs. Did it make me feel safer? Did it make me feel less poor? Did it make, give me a job? Did it, you know, uh, uh, put food on the table? Is it protecting the environment? You know, these are things I can put my teeth into. I like that. So it was a win-win for us. We uh, decided to have a conference. We brought together a, a conference. Some activists that were working with in Vienna had a, her heart set on putting a conference in this big Vienna Austria center that's physically located like right next to the United Nations. And we did it. Somehow we pulled it off. We put on a real for real international high quality, you know, business style conference surrounding the sustainable development goals. And we came up with a book that was the product of that meeting and of the consultations leading up to that meeting. And the idea was simple. They're doing these sustainable development goals. A lot of it has to do with, you know, criminal justice. A lot of it has to do with protecting the environment. A lot of things that we pride ourselves very deeply in the cannabis movement for and really have never really addressed or, or spoken to much at all. We've crossed over a little bit over the years with environmental groups and things like that on particular issues. Uh, human rights groups on particular issues, but this is a chance for us to really put forth our ideas of how we can meet each and every one of these goals, if applicable. And it wound up being like two or three of the goals we had nothing to say about, like 14 others we had a lot to say about. And we pulled this conference together and brought people in and actually brought 50 of those people with badges into the United Nations to watch the World Health Organization deliver its recommendations and they didn't, they dropped the mic and they delayed. It was part of that drama I was talking about. So we were, it wound up being a good point of reflection and a moment on the historical curve that, that I'm pretty proud of, but we were pretty bummed at that moment. But nonetheless, that was the idea. And we, we came up with this book, you can find it on the web, uh, and certainly go to the FAT websites, it's still up and you can find it. The uh, uh, Cannabis and Sustainable Development is the title. And it goes through the, the various uh, sustainable development goals and how the cannabis world. Yeah, there you go. That's it. That's the one. So it, it's a it's a good primer and a good starting point for a conversation that really carries through all this whole decade. Again, this is a, this is a really neat decade to be working on this stuff. Awesome. Michael, let's do a quick bit of coaching. And I'm going to ask you to be the coach. And what I what I mean by that is, you know, a big part of coaching is having to tell people the things that they might not want to hear and that most people are reluctant to tell them. And so we, we chatted a bit earlier about there's some things that the business community, the cannabis business community doesn't want to hear, but probably needs to hear. And so I'm wondering if you, if you have anything that you can share. Well, the, 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 the pet issue, I think for me, these these days in the last you know, few years has been the ability for people to be able to grow at home. And, you know, we talked about that, you know, the, the first rung of that of that ladder. I think that is a knee jerk reaction to uh, fight against home grow. I mean, there was industry pushback in in uh, New York very recently, you know, the historically uh, pushing back against people being able to grow their own with the idea that, you know, you'll you'll uh, pay more money into the system, pay the taxes and, and the tax model will work, everything. I, you know, I get it. I get what they're trying to do and I get what they're, what they're thinking, but it, it is, it is incorrect to think that the individual home grower is somehow 
an opponent or, 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 or an obstacle to be gotten rid of for an effective regular, regulated system. Uh, it just doesn't seem to work that way. Um, you know, people can cultivate their own and, and share it with their friends. And more often than not, just as it is with, you know, home brewing beer uh, or, or, or for that matter, you know, uh, uh, taking a fish out of the you know, pond behind your house, uh, you wind up going down to the pet store and spending three hundred dollars on fish tanks and air pumps and rocks and gravel. And <laughs> you know, it it, it 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 works out. It works out in the end. Uh, and uh, I think it's really important for medicinal access to survive this time period. Uh, I think you know, giving back to the to from directly from industry to help. In uh, people that are poor, people that are homeless, access cannabis. I think these are are, are all programs that, all, although they may seem on their face to be a tax burden, uh, we had that pushback from California's governor when we tried to create our charity program to allow for tax write-off. You know, so you can give cannabis from the dispensary system that's let's say outdated or off the shelf or going off the shelf. You want to donate it to to the veterans, or you want to donate it to uh, people that are. Uh, unable to pay the prices of the cannabis and they weren't able to do it without actually having to pay the taxes the full tax bill uh and the governor pushed back saying that that wasn't the will of the people that the will of the people was to pay the taxes and you know i, I think these things are so it, it reminds me of uh kevin sabet and the the opposition to cannabis and they were railing against a, a, something we, we put in nevada which was something that we put in as an accommodation to them where you couldn't grow your own if you lived near a dispensary that was an accommodation to them. And yet they used it against us saying, that, oh, look, you know, they, they won't let you grow your own if you live in a dispensary because they want to support big business and big tobacco. And oh my God, my brain wants to explode. It's not true. That's not it. It's, it's, it's not Kevin Sabet's perspective. It's not the industry perspective. It's not, you know, these, all these perspectives seem askew. Um, yeah, the, you should be able to grow your own no matter where you are. That's our position. Uh, and and if we made an accommodation uh, to to get something on the books, um, those accommodations should start wearing out now. We don't need to be making accommodations anymore. Um, so hopefully those kind of errors will, will disappear. But yeah, I think I think we all should be working together. Um, I, unlike Kevin Sabet, I'm not against big industry. I, I am uh, in favor of fairness and and for the little guy. You know, when Kevin Sabat comes in and complains of Blue Streak and causes, a, you know, legislators to create a whole bunch more careful regulation and careful, you know, rules, every one of those new regulations creates a burden for a small business to have to have more legal infrastructure to be able to deal with that and naturally favors big industry, big business, which is Kevin Sabat's stated opponent, the, the big uh, corporate you know, tobacco model. That's what he fights against, which again, I, I think our cannabis movement, you know, really doesn't really like the big corporate tobacco model either. So, you know, we, we should be all in consensus working forward here. Uh, and you know, I'll work with big tobacco and I'm, I'm not against big tobacco, but again, uh, we shouldn't be giving them an unfair edge. They, they shouldn't have the ability to do what an individual can't do. So Michael, let me ask you one last question before I let you go which is what advice do you have for veterans or even civilians who want to get involved in the movement, in the advocacy for greater access to cannabis? Be creative. 
be creative. This, this is a, a point for creativity. Um, don't try to fit into the cookie cutter that you see in front of you, because as I've been kind of alluding to, you know, we're at a, a point where we're going to have to imagine something new. I'm a historian. I, I've worked a lot on, you know, it's another whole show we can do just talking about artifacts and the cannabis history. But uh, in short, um, we've never done this before. Cannabis was legal up until it was made illegal. So it was never illegal, but it was never a regulated industry. We had regulated uh, medicinal access in some places, but we never had a regulated industry for non-medical use. You just buy it out of magazines, it was unregulated. Uh, it may have been tariffs on imported goods, but it wasn't any kind of special regulation for, for cannabis um, and, and not, you know, I think to be fair, uh, especially with what we know about cannabis and how we're dissecting it into cannabinoids and coming up with different preparations that some of them may be more abusable and less abusable than others. I think it actually does bode well to have a careful regulation for cannabis that is different than other agricultural you know, products and different from alcohol for that matter. Uh, but um, this is new. This is a whole new paradigm that we're creating that isn't really based on anything in the past. And for that reason, I would, I would, you know, I would urge people to be creative in, in what they, what they do and think, and, um, you know, try to, try to protect the specialness of this plant person relationship as we try to put it into a sort of a, a bag, you know, with a UPC code, you know, there's a transition we need to make where somehow we need to, cherish and preserve that Chinese apothecary with hundreds of drawers and somebody behind the counter that knows what's in every one of those drawers, where it came from, the farmers, how they grew it, you know, they, they, there's a special relationship there. Uh, and, and then somehow get that and the, and the essence of the best of that into, you know, commercial products, because recognizing that most people are going to buy, you know, the Budweiser beer and not spend $25 for a craft six pack. And, and most people are going to buy you know, a, a bottle of wine for five or six dollars from the grocery store, not spend a hundred dollars on the fanciest wine. You know, I'm, I'm betting that there'll be a, quite a few people that want that hundred dollar bottle of wine. And that's where I'm aiming. My, my vision is on the future where the best cannabis will be still available and will sort of have that, that specialty niche. But uh, the Budweiser of cannabis is going to be very different than anything you're looking at now. So if you're planning on, you know, working in that world, uh, look at the future with a lens that doesn't involve recreating the past. I love that. Michael, thank you so very much for spending the afternoon with me here chatting about all of this stuff. I'm sure we could do several more hours of this because you've <laughs> got so much great stuff and amazing stories to share. So I want to thank you for your time and also thank you for all the work you've done for these many, many years. And I hope that you just keep on fighting the good fight and, and leading the way to greater cannabis access for, for all of us. So thank you. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The cannabis business coach. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The cannabis business coach.